Los Angeles, Ben Acker and I are celebrating the release of our new Star Wars young adult novel, Star Wars Join the Resistance, thematically timely, uh, with a big variety show, charity, benefit, fun around, book signing, book release party on March 8th at Largo at the Coronet. It's going to be Star Wars themed, it's going to be Resistance themed, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we've got uh, a great lineup shaping up already, and we'll be announcing lots of guests uh, throughout the month. We hope you can join us. The show will benefit Public Counsel, which is the nation's largest not-for-profit law firm specializing in delivering pro bono legal services. They're right here in Los Angeles, and they strive to achieve three goals, protecting the legal rights of disadvantaged children, representing immigrants who have been the victims of torture, persecution, domestic violence, trafficking, and other crimes, and fostering economic justice by providing individuals and institutions in underserved communities with access to quality legal representation. We really believe in this organization, and um, we know a lot of bigger organizations are getting uh, a lot of donations right now, and we thought it would be good to highlight Public Council, which is, while a very big organization, is really focused on Los Angeles um, primarily. So if you are in L.A., please join us for this event. We've got uh, our pal Matt Gorley of the I Was There Too podcast, uh, Doug Benson of I Love Movies. Uh, we've got Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks. So come see him anyway. He's a great guy and a very funny guy. We're going to do some fun stuff with him. Uh, the show, again, March 8th at Largo. Go to largo la Dot com for tickets. Follow at B-N-A-C-K-E-R at Ben Acker on Twitter. Follow me at Ben Blacker on Twitter for updates about the lineup and uh, more fun stuff. And you'll be able to get books at that show too. If you're not coming to the show, get the book on Amazon. You can pre-order it now. Now entering Nerdist.com Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order but mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight. Whenever the time is right, it's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! That's a good question. We're, we're actually, the show ended, uh, we had our finale last Wednesday, mm-hmm. so a week ago, 
and we are anxiously uh, awaiting the news of a pickup for season two. All right. Um, were you, I mean, look, uh, we should go back. We should talk a little bit. So, Ted Humphrey, yes. David Pastor, thank you for being here. Thank you yeah. for having me here. Thank you um, for having us on the podcast. Yes. Of course. Uh, so, you, David, you created the show, co created the show, right? Created the show with, with Alex, mm-hmm. uh, my my brother and, and and partner and all around soulmate, I guess. And yeah, we we created the show together uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. People they say that the show feels very topical and relevant, <laughs> but we've actually been you know working on this idea for for a few years now. And we we created the show. We we wrote the, the pilot and spec, okay. and then is when we sent it to Ted who responded to it and agreed to join us as, as the showrunner of the show. Uh, did you guys have a relationship already? Were you brought in by a third party? I, sort of. I, uh, we did, I mean, we did not have a relationship already. Um, they had sent it to... We're represented at the same agency. Everything okay. in Hollywood is incestuous. Um, and then also that agency represents uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And they had sent the script to uh, Matt and Ben and their company, Pearl Street, and you know, they, they got me involved or the agency and they together sort of got me involved and put us together. Sure. Where, what were you doing at the time? I was working on The Good Wife. Okay. I was uh, one of the executive producers of The Good Wife mm-hmm. and had been doing that for a number of years. I was there from the first day of The Good Wife um, and I left at the beginning of the last season to go and do Incorporated. That that was when we shot, it was the summer of 2015 is when we went and shot the pilot oh, wow. of Incorporated sure. in Toronto. These things take a long time sometimes. Yeah. To, to hatch. I mean, we, we uh, first met and started talking in, I guess it was the fall, late summer, fall of 2014. That's when I was sent the script. We together took it out, together me and myself, David and Alex took it out. We sold it to Sci-Fi. Then we had to wait around a bit while they decided whether or not they were going to greenlight the pilot. They, they did decide to do that. And then we shot the pilot in the summer of 2015. And then we had to wait around a bit while they decided if they were going to pick it up and then they did do that and yeah, I think cable is a little different than like network television where you have this whole like you know pilot season madness right. <clears throat> where everything gets greenlit and then shot and edited and, and picked yep. up for series over like a very short period of time with basic cable at least in our case it was more of a you know more organic process like mm-hmm. we were not rushed to yeah. shoot it we were not rushed to edit it was just about just getting the, getting it right and, yeah. and they deciding if they wanted it or not okay so I want to go back and sort of take apart all these pieces of the story because sure. it's very interesting to me um, so when you you and Alex wrote that script what was the you guys had done some features right and so what was the uh, what was the initial idea what was the th- idea you wanted to explore and why TV well, the, the original idea was basically based on, you know, reading the news every day and getting mad and angry at the way the, the world, not even at the way the world was going now, the, world, the way the world was going like three, four, five years ago. <laughs> Back when things were good. Yeah. We But, you know, like you see, like the climate change happening and not enough things being done about it, mm-hmm. uh, you start to think, how is that going to affect the world and how is that going to in a way make us feel like now we're living at the apex of human civilization and what happens if everything's going to start going downhill from from now you know you see privatization going on which in Europe was happening a lot after the the recession even more than than here in, in, in the US we're writing this pilot about 
the Smithsonian selling off their art collection to pay for debt, and, and then you open the newspaper, and, and, and Portugal is sending is selling their art collection to to pay off their debts, and then Greece is selling off like whole islands mm-hmm. that they cannot even afford. So that was all happening a few years ago, and that was part of the inspiration of of the show. You know, what would happen if all these trends would just you know give them steroids and see what would happen to the world and specifically to the U.S. That in a way felt a little separate from that but you know I don't think that uh, we are immune to, to all the stuff that's, that's oh, going absolutely. on and why TV why TV because our agent was like guys this is never going to happen in <laughs> <at> the movie <laughs> no we started writing it as a movie at least at, at, at like um at the treatment level you know we never actually wrote a script for a movie we wrote a treatment and our agent was like guys Today's climate, this is not going to happen as a movie. Sure. It's not big enough. It's not small enough. It's not high concept enough. It's all about the characters and the world and and the drama. So this feels like there's no room for that in, in contemporary film. Yeah. And there's room for it now in, in television. And, and the moment he said that, everything kind of clicked, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly, all the stuff that we've been struggling to fit into, like, two hours... It was liberating. You know, like, well, we don't need to fit everything into two hours. Like, you know, that's something that had happened before in other movies in the past that we wrote, mm-hmm. and that we felt that we couldn't really honor the concept because of the constraints of, of the story. Sure. And here, Salem is like, whoa, we have time to expand and 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 really go into the details of this world and into you know a vast cast of characters that we wouldn't have in a movie. And so, yeah, after that, everything just kind of like clicked, and we just all we had to do was. Rewatch all of our favorite pilots. Sure. <laughs> you know. what, what did you rewatch? Did we you re- well, we, re- we rewatched the the pilot of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. We rewatched the the pilot of Mad Men. We watched the pilot of uh, Sons of Anarchy, which we never seen, mm-hmm. and I really liked it. I've never seen any other episode after that. I've never, I've never even seen the pilot. I've seen, no, yeah. I should watch it. No, my wife was like, I mean, we're not watching a show about bikers. Sorry. <laughs> but, so I mean, I actually like the concept of the yeah, show. I was, I was kicking around the Sonny Barger story, you know, it was just like, mm-hmm. they found out the Hells Angels and they, they tried to make numerous movies about that guy. I think HBO developed a show, you know, and then Sons of Anarchy kind of blew all that out of the water. And it's it's a really good pilot and I'm really curious to know what happens <laughs> in the <laughs> following six seasons, but like the way it really jumps into the, the story and it sets up a lot of characters, a lot of conflicts, and at the same time it manages to tell a short story within those first 43 mm-hmm. minutes uh, I thought that was very, you know, interesting. It's really instructive, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. You know, and then you start reading the pilot scripts, and you go like, well, it kind of looks like a movie script. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. format is the same. <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it ends on page fifty something, and uh, <laughs> to be continued. You know? Right. You don't have to write a third. Yeah, act. That's kind of nice. exactly. Um, so, you guys wrote the script. Obviously, your agents or managers really liked it enough to send it out. So, Ted, when you received this, yes. what did you respond to? And then, once getting on board, what did you see as your job here? Well, I, I, I mean, I love kind of high-concept ideas like this and, and, you know, what I call speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. I thought it was something that we weren't seeing anything like this on TV at the moment. I, just, I, you know, I thought it was, first and foremost, it was a great story. It was a commercial idea, meaning just... I can see a show working, and in fact, mm-hmm. lo and behold, here we are a couple years later, and, and we've done a season, you know. And I love just speaking to what David just said. I love the way that it did tell a little story in the pilot. Mm-hmm. 
a cool little fun sort of heist story, if you will, of of Ben setting up his boss in order to further what agenda you you aren't even quite sure yet. You know, in the in the pilot, I, I just thought that was that was really cool. Um, also, speaking a little bit to the period of time that it took for this to develop, and what David was saying about basic cable, you know, things breathe a lot more. Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's a frustrating thing because you're waiting around, you know. But it, it's always frustrating in network television when it's just go 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 go. And I, and I think the this kind of relationship suffers in that go 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 you know environment and. The great thing about letting it breathe is we had time to kind of get to know each other and work on the script together and work on the show together and really kind of figure out together what we wanted the show to be. Yeah, um, so I'm curious to hear about those conversations. What did what did you each bring to the party at that point? I mean, I, I, they, they brought obviously the the idea, right. the the scripts, um, you know, a, a million ideas about what they wanted this to be, and really well thought out, researched, you know, not just off the cuff stuff, but really, you know. They, they both have, you know, read an enormous amount and studied an enormous amount of, of the subject matter as well as obviously having just creative ideas about the characters and stuff. And, you know, I, obviously I've got a lot of experience in television that they didn't have. That that was That's usually what these matches are. And I think when they work well, it's because people are creatively on the same page. And I always felt like we were creatively on the same page and, and you know, that we kind of had the same idea of what story it was we wanted to tell. And then we were fortunate enough... I mean, the, sh- the pilot itself was already pretty fully formed. You know, there were some ideas that, that I threw out to them in terms of the... Uh, we were kind of re-jiggering it a little bit, uh, both first to take it out and sell it, and then secondly, once we did sell it, of course, the network had some notes and thoughts about what they wanted to see. And so, you know, we, we collaborated on that, but largely what's in the pilot is, is you know, 90% what was there to, to begin with. That's great. Um, yeah, but, uh, but one of the great images of the pilot is, is uh, it comes from Ted. You know, like yeah. this. Well, this is a very iconic image that, that, that the network keeps using for advertising, like this car driving down the road, and, and, and there's all these idyllic trees left and right. And then the camera pulls up, and then you see that the trees are actually like a holographic projection, mm-hmm. and there are slums left and right. And in the original draft of the pilot, Alex and I just wrote, you know, he's driving down this private road, there's chain-link fans on both sides, and there's poor people and slums on both sides of the fence. And that is the one who said, you know, I think it would be more interesting if there's actually like this sort of holographic screen that creates the illusion of this yeah. idyllic countryside, and then you reveal that... It tells you so much about the world. Well, and, and about the deceit that's necessary yeah. to maintain this, you know... Lifestyle where you're kind of not paying attention to the have-nots, you know, mm-hmm. and we see that in our lives. I mean, you know, so look, I'm glad I was able to, to contribute that thing, and, and it, but but I mean, it really was a group, you know, effort. And then once we got the show picked up, we were um, fortunate slash, uh, you know, I'd like to think we were smart and, and kind of focused about the writers that we hired. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's a whole that's a whole process that any show goes through yeah. where you have to hire a writing staff. And again, you know, it really like cable network, it's always kind of the same thing because always in network, it's this big rush. You know, all these shows get picked up at the same time yeah. and you're fighting with other shows to get the writers you want and whatever. And, you know, in cable, again, often you're sort of off cycle. So we were hiring writers in January when other shows, you know, which was great. We had... 
we had, uh, I don't want to say we had our pick of people necessarily, but we had some people who might not have been available to us mm-hmm. at a later point because they would have gone on a network show or something. And so when you were putting together that staff, um, and, I'm, and I want to hear about the room in a minute, but in putting together that staff, what were you reading? What were you particularly responding to? Was there anything that stands out in memory? Well, I think we were reading... Uh, Pilots, you know, spec pilots, you know, people write pilots, on, and then that's what you read. I think the one thing that Ted taught us is, guys, let's not read episodes of existing shows that mm-hmm. some people have written because you don't know how much of that is that writer and how much was rewritten by the showrunner, or you don't know sure. how much of that story was broken by a group of writers in the room. So maybe one thing you want to know about t- TV is like just because the name of a person is on the page as the writer <laughs> of that episode, yeah. that doesn't mean necessarily that he came up or he or she came up with all, all that right. story. Yeah, yeah, it means sure. that that's the person that executed it. So what is useful, that's what we'll, one of the many things we'll learn from Ted, is to read pilots that these people have written on mm-hmm. spec and that they really represent their sensibility and their point of view and their you know voice. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking for at some yeah. point. It's just like fresh voices, uh, people in, who can write interesting things on their own that hopefully they can bring that sort of interesting point of view to your own show. And that uh, hopefully people that are better writers than you are. You know, I was. One I'm of, always looking for that. <laughs> you want to write that, 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 read that pilot, and be like, oh man, I wish I had written that line. That's yeah. a really good line. Yeah. Or you know, and and that's the the people that you want with you. And we read some features. We read we read even some stage plays. Uh, right. One of our one of our writers at least is primarily a or was primarily a playwright, and mm-hmm. you know, so what we had read until we corrupted him and brought him to, <laughs> to LA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Now he's sold out to the man. Um, oh, but, sure. uh, he's <laughs> a real Barton thing. Exactly. Yes, he is. <laughs> it's very true. Um, was it primarily genre stuff that you were reading? No, that's great. It's, it's all over the place. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I mean, the whole that this this is another thing that's kind of changed in the last I don't know ten years or whatever. That it used to be. That people primarily wrote episodes of shows, not even as as David was talking about an episode of a, sh- of a show that they actually worked on, but episodes of shows they didn't work on, yeah. like spec episodes of Mad Men or whatever. Yeah. And I've never found that helpful because, um, you know, what you're what you're reading with that is somebody's ability to mimic a voice, which yeah, that is a skill that you need because you need them to then be able to mimic your voice or. Or whatever, but I personally have always found it more helpful to find to, to read somebody's original work and, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and see what makes. I think we specifically asked to read scripts that were not science fiction. That we were more we interested in, yes. in people who could write good characters. That I didn't right. want to be reading scripts that the lines were all about, you know, set your phasers to stun. <laughs> which you know, no offense, I love the molecular Star Trek. regenerator. Yeah, but it, that, that's not the kind of writing that we were looking yeah. for. You know, it was more like, hey, can kind of you find us people that that can write character mm-hmm. and relationships? Yeah. And something like a, we would hire a writer, and he'd be like, oh, so you hire me? Did you read my science fiction script? I'm like, no, we actually read your medical <laughs> drama. Right. <laughs> you know, we actually That's never right. read, read your science fiction script. Yeah, we. I don't think any you know any of the three of us think of the show as a science fiction show. I mean, obviously there are elements of science fiction, but it's first of all, it's very. It only takes place sixty years in the future, so it's not spaceships and right. phasers or anything like that. It, it, it really most of the show when you watch it feels like it could be today, mm-hmm. a somewhat heightened version of today. But for the most part, people like live in houses and work in offices and live in a world that pretty much looks like the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in that respect, we very much saw it as 
much more of a human character drama with there's a lot of what you would call corporate espionage or that kind of suspense there's a lot of suspense in the show but the suspense is largely driven by um, you know a, a corporate espionage kind of environment um, yeah. that's augmented by some technology that doesn't exist today you know the, the thing that's being sold is not uh, something that would exist today it's something that would exist maybe 60 years from now but it's still a MacGuffin essentially you know? yeah. yeah I think that's an important thing when approaching a lot of I mean you call it speculative rather than sci-fi right and I think there there is sort of a, a difference in that at least in the perception of it um, but getting back to the room I mean it seems like you guys knew what you were what your expectations of having a room would be you wanted these character people you want these story people uh, rather than sort of the, the sci-fi or the genre people you want these dialogue people yeah I mean I just didn't know what to expect from the room because I'd never been in a writer's room so for us it was kind of like how does this work again it's like we can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> well uh, let's hear about that I would love to hear what your reaction to well no I mean it's a very group of people writing a story yes it, it is very interesting I mean Alex and I are used to, to collaborating we, mm-hmm. we, we collaborate with each other you know so in a way when you're doing a TV show what you're doing is bringing in more voices and, and more people into the process which in a way we're already used to you know I, I hate just staring at the blind page and I wouldn't even know what to do that anymore. God, I hate it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the, the dialogue and the collaboration, that's always been fun yeah. for us. But it, it is true that it becomes a, it, it's a sort of a slightly different process, you know, that, that, that you need to break like a something that's more complicated than, than a two-hour movie. It's only like a 10-part story. And how much you're willing to improvise episode to episode mm-hmm. because you find interesting stories and how much you want to stick to an overall plan you know and there's dangers to both of them it's dangerous that somebody you just go episode by episode because things are cool or interesting and then you know where you're going but at the same time it's also dangerous if you are too rigid and go like no 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 that was not the original plan you know do you guys feel like you found that that happy medium in this first season we do um I mean, there were there were uh, monkey wrenches that were thrown into it, not by us. I mean, some sure. of them were by us, but but there were monkey wrenches that were thrown into it by the process, by uh, the network. Originally, we had um, a thirteen episode order, and then very late in the, I mean, really on the eve of production, when we were about to start shooting the first episode, they changed it to a ten episode order. Oh, wow. And they did that because they've they've had success with 10 episodes like Mr. Robot which the same studio produces is 10 episodes yeah. and I think they do uh, I think The Expanse which is a big hit for sci-fi is right. 10 episodes and The Magicians is 10 episodes I'm pretty sure so you know they and the irony of that is we actually we would have liked a 10 episode order to begin with we felt like that was a good number sure and then but when they gave us 13 we said okay we'll do 13 right. and we had sort of plotted out a story that took place over 13 and then having to on the fly you know, when we were already sort of halfway into the process, or more than halfway into the process, um, having to figure out how do we condense this to ten mm-hmm. was very tricky. Uh, you know, I think we pulled it off like ninety-five percent of the way. <laughs> Meaning, I, I, you know, there's a few things that I think we feel like in the last couple of episodes are just clunky because we didn't have enough time sure. that we'd already committed so far down a road that we didn't have enough time to pull back. Um, That's frustrating. We, it, it was a little frustrating, but you know. It, yeah, at some point, I think part things, and parcel of TV, And I think with those things, sometimes you just say, "Well, you know, we're going to have to save that for season mm-hmm. two, episode one." Absolutely. You know? 
yeah. if there's no room at the end of the, of the season because you're literally running out of episodes, <laughs> then we're going to you know just push it back to, to season two. And, and I, I guess one of the things about TV these days is that the format is so less rigid than it used to be. Mm-hmm. People are more yeah. you know willing to accept you know things like that it used to be like much more strict and now you know nobody cares in Game of Thrones a character goes away for like two episodes and then comes back three episodes later sometimes like with Bran I think he was gone for a whole season and then he, when he came back he looked like he'd just been to college you know like <laughs> his voice and <laughs> yeah that's true that's <laughs> the problem with Chad yeah. <laughs> but you know so, we're gonna come back and Hazel's gonna yeah. be like you know I mean we, 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 <laughs> I mean, we would like to keep all the balls in the air, which is something that I admire when I see, like, a, a great TV show mm-hmm. that, you know, like Breaking Bad, for example, like, oh, my God, they're keeping every character alive. And I'm going, I, I think that's just, like, so amazing. Yeah, that's really and, and, I, and, and from the inside, I know how hard it is. Yeah. It's, hard, it's hard not only from a... I mean, the thing that I think most people who don't do this for a living don't realize is you sort of see it must be hard creatively. Mm-hmm. What you don't realize is how hard it is um, logistically mm. that uh, you you don't... These actors who play these characters are not chess pieces that you own and control, <laughs> right? They're, they're people who have lives and other jobs. And so you, that's why typically when you do a television show, you have your, your series regulars who you have signed to a deal, and right. they they're committed to being in whenever you need them in your show. If they're not a series regular, they're not committed to that. Right. And they have other jobs that they take. And so you don't always get them when you want them. You, you may, it may be the perfect time to bring back character X in this episode, but character X may not be available. So it's, there's a whole kind of logistical juggling act that goes along with that, that, you know, if you don't do this for a living, you probably don't even really think about of that. Of course. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's all these outside forces that inform yeah. what your show is going to be creatively, which is a really Yeah, really sometimes it becomes thing. a nightmare for the assistant, the, the <laughs> sure. assistant director who has to schedule it. That is like, wait, but David Hewlett is also in the Guillermo del Toro movie. Yeah. So yeah. are you sure we can bring him back? It's like, well, we have to bring him back, you know? Interesting. You like end that. up, you, it's funny, you end up sometimes, we, we, this happened all the time on The Good Wife. Yeah. Because it was a show. Um, I used to tell Robert and Michelle King this all the time, and they they just kind of shrugged like there was nothing we could do. <laughs> Weirdly, that was a that was a show that we built around. In, in a lot of ways, we built around our guest cast. Like we would build these episodes around Dylan Baker's character coming back, you know, which was a character that, that I created in an episode of that show. But you know, again, we don't, Dylan Baker's doing other things, you know, so we we couldn't always get him or anybody when we wanted them and the same the same is true here and so you end up sometimes building your episode around we need this person we can only have them on this day and so everybody even even the the star of the show you know we have to kind of adjust his schedule to reflect this person's schedule wow. now, that, that would have been a, a, a good web spin-off that I would watch the Dylan, the Dylan Baker show yeah. yes I think that the ADs are really the unsung heroes of all these shows you know, like, the assistant director is the yeah. guy who schedules yeah. every episode of the shooting and, and keeps the show moving forward and it's so hard you know in television where you need to feed this 50 page script into like 7 or 8 shooting days it's like a Rubik's Cube yeah. I think that our that 80s probably do Rubik's Cube just as a hobby just to relax yeah. you know with their eyes closed the first, the first AD is the unsung hero of television production it's true they are, they are, they are really the people who, who make it work yeah um, absolutely um, so despite all these outside forces yes in the room yes 
that's the part you guys can control. <laughs> you know, you can, well, yes. You can, as much as you can control anything, yes. Right. As, you can, um, yeah, as long as you can control those unruly, uh, right. crazy people <laughs> yes. that we hired as writers. Which, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you, what you, Ted, have taken from shows you've worked on that worked well to running this room. So, uh, okay, um, one thing is we're doing a serialized show, heavily serialized show, as, as many basic cable shows tend to be, right? Um, the Good Wife, for instance, was a network show, which do not tend to be heavily serialized. The Good Wife was pretty heavily serialized. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was still a standalone episode show yeah. in that every week there was typically a story of some kind, like a legal case, but it was much more heavily serialized than your average network, uh, you know, quote-unquote procedural show. Sure. And one thing I learned doing that show and doing doing other shows I'd done before that that were heavily serialized was uh, to divide things up to some extent by character. Um, in, in other words, yes, you were looking at what is the season-long arc story, but then further divide that up by what is the season-long arc story for this character and this character and mm-hmm. this character. And I'm very... Um, I try to be very organized about that stuff. So, for instance, I mean, it's it's all pretty common sense and it's, I'm part, you know... It, this is all pretty standard operating procedure. So it's not like I invented it or anything, but you know, let's let's put this character in this color, and let's put this character in this color, and that way, when you're sort of building your season-long story, you can look at it at a glance and see how much do we have of Ben in this episode, how much do we have of Laura in this episode, and so on, you know, and so forth. And just little organizational tricks like that that help you figure out where you're going, you know, on the long arc of of the season, basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the good thing about the color cards is that. If you have one for each character and then you suddenly find a scene that deals with multiple characters yeah, and you have to cut down the cards to different <laughs> colors. Yeah. But that's when you think, oh, this is going to work, this is fun, you know, because when you realize that there's a scene where all these people and their stories intersect somehow, yeah. that's when you, you, know, you, you, you want to see those also. You want to mm-hmm. see those, those moments where Absolutely. somebody's actually cutting up those cards because that scene belongs to character A, B, C, and D, you mm-hmm. know. And we we never um, it, it, it's, a, it's actually another thing I learned doing the Good Wife, but uh, it's something I've tried to carry with me in, in everything I do. Is we never tried to jam those intersections together, or and we never tried to jam. There are shows out there, and we all know what they are. That um, they they uh, every episode has a theme with a capital T. Often they're the kinds of shows where there's voiceover and somebody's telling you what that theme is. Carrie you know? <laughs> Yeah, right, for the episode. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's fine. I enjoy those shows, but I, I'm always a little bit allergic to that kind of um, imposing a theme from above. Yeah. And what I think, you know, our show did pretty well and what The Good Wife did very well as well was you kind of found that theme organically and there was a little bit of a... Uh, kind of an alchemical process, if you will, that, that occurred, and where you were breaking what appeared to be separate stories, for, and then, but you know, magically—it's not really magic, of course—but but you know, they would kind of combine, and then you would find, as David says, those intersection points where yeah. you realize actually there. I do think there's a subconscious thing where, when you're working on these stories, you're subconsciously kind of interweaving them thematically, mm-hmm. and that's much more organic. And ultimately, much more uh, satisfying than when you just set out to say we're going to do an episode about, you know, mind control or whatever. Right. And, yeah. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think that sort of subconscious interweaving of theme often comes from the showrunner's interest, right? It's 
whether he knows it or he or she knows it or not, these are the things that he or she wants to explore. Now, we're talking about TV, which is a many-headed beast. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of corralling the ideas of, first of all, you guys, you three, but also the room that you have? Well, yeah, I mean, there would be a time where we'd be like, no, sorry, that, that's, that's against the ethos of the show. You know, like somebody would bring up a, an idea that could be good or bad or, you know, not a bad idea per se, but you would say, no, sorry, that's, that's not what the show is about or, or, or we want to fight for this story, <clears throat> not because of the story itself, but just because that's, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote, I hate to say the message of the show mm-hmm. because it feels like it's some sort of preachy, uh, right. preachy but, but it's not. You know, you know what the show is. Yeah, and, and, and we know what the, yeah, what, the, what our worldview is and, and what we want to say about, about the world. Uh, and so we're trying to make sure that all the stories that we tell, in a way, you know, reinforce that and 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 and, and have hopefully like a positive, you know, outcome on the world. And, and yeah, and that's something that that the writers, I think, probably they, they start feeling and, and getting as, as as the weeks go by. Not so much at the beginning, but at some point they start to understand what we like, what we don't like, mm-hmm. and and. Sometimes it's good when they fight for something, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like, oh, I just want to give you whatever you would like, and and that will make my life easier. You also appreciate <laughs> the people that will fight for an idea, and and will sell you on, on an idea that they truly believe. And then at some point, you need to decide if you trust, yeah, or not. It's like, okay, if I don't totally see it, but if you really believe that you can make this work and you can deliver on it, then you know, go for it. That's yeah. really cool. And then you read it, and maybe the, you were right, or maybe they were right. right. Hopefully they were right, and they yeah. really managed to make yeah. it work. I love being proven wrong. In that, <laughs> you know, but, I mean, it, it, it's, it is always important. I mean, it's always the case that there is or needs to be a creative um, path setter. Mm-hmm. And typically that is the creator of the show, the showrunner, if those if those people are separate, then the combination of that, you know, right. as in this case, um, you, you lay out the parameters of, of, you know, sometimes you lay them out explicitly and sometimes you lay them out reactively, meaning <laughs> as David says, somebody pitches something and you say, well, that's just not the show, you know, yeah. and that, that happens on every show. Of course. And then those things kind of change over time. And it's always, either way, yeah. it's helpful, no, right? It's, it's giving a clear And sometimes you need to have, like, the, the long view and, and be like... They will pitch you something that's really cool, like what if this happened in this episode, and then you go like, yeah, but how is that gonna affect what's happened one, two, three episodes on the road? Like this is a really cool cliffhanger, but you have a way of writing your way out of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, otherwise we're gonna find ourselves in this alley, and yeah. it's like, yeah, but it's such a great cliffhanger. It's like, yes, but <laughs> unless you find me a way out of it. You know that right. that doesn't resolve like a big cop out or one of our main characters looking like an idiot. Yep. You know, we, those cool cliffhanger moments only work if you're not you know throwing the whole show under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. You know to get them. So especially so. on this kind of highly serialized show. Yeah. Um, so how did it work? Uh, did you break story in the room? Did you outline story in the room? How was the room used? And then how were the individual writers used? We we broke the stories in the room collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I there are a million ways to skin a cat, um, it, but I, you know I believe certainly, especially the more serialized the show is, 
the more necessary that is. Yeah. Um, so we broke the stories very, very thoroughly in the room to where David and Alice and I would, you know, ultimately sign off on mm-hmm. a pretty complete story where, like, every scene is, is broken out, right? And then the writers would go off and they would write an outline, you know, that typically was a, a pretty faithful rendering of, of what mm-hmm. that story was that was broken in the room. And, then, uh, and whoever was the writer of that episode would, in a way, take point yes. on that episode. Mm-hmm. I'm building it in the room. And, and, and he would be, like, the leader of... Of the... <clears throat> right, putting up the... The cards are writing on the whiteboards yeah. and, and leading the discussion That's or great. whatever. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and then, that, and then that person, you know, and it, again, there are external forces, right? Meaning, we are not the only right. um, uh, 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 voices that have to approve these things. We have we have bosses at the studio and the network, you know, who ultimately, you know, ultimately have a say as well. And so sometimes the stuff that we liked and put into the outlines in the room, the network might say, "Oh, we don't really like that." And then that's a whole other debate that we have to have with them about. Right. You know whether whose vision is going to kind of prevail here, um, but ultimately, then once that is approved, then the writer uh, would go off, a writer or writers would go off and, and write the script. How long do they usually have for uh, first draft? Uh, a couple of weeks, I guess. I mean, it depends at what point of the season <laughs> you're in. And again, you know, how crazy things are. Yeah, you know, how crazy things are. You know. It, Two weeks, three days. I, 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 never, I never felt like it got too crazy on this show because, again, we sort of had a reasonable amount of time built in with mm-hmm. it being cable. In network, it often gets crazy to where, um, you know, every there are lots of shows on network where every episode is essentially group written. Right. Even if it has one person's name on it, really, it's mm-hmm. like they're dividing that up and, you know, four different people are each taking an act or something because it's just you've got, like, four days to write this episode yeah. that's got to shoot next week. Um, that does happen. Luckily, we didn't ever get quite into that position. Too. Yeah. Did you guys run into that on The Good Wife? All the time. Really? How many episodes were you doing? There, there's, a, there's an expression for that, right? There is an expression for that. Yes. <laughs> we don't use that. <laughs> we use group right now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, how many episodes did we did? Twenty two. I mean, it was. A, yeah, that's you know, it, it's tough. Um, and I it, find it mind boggling. And it's especially right? tough when it's serialized. Again, it's easier when yeah. you're doing a straight ahead procedural Law and Order because. Yeah. You know, Law and Order, every episode exists in a vacuum. So right. you can really have uh, different groups of people breaking five different episodes at the same time, If you know, if you have enough bodies at right. least, you know, and if you have enough talented people, whereas you, you just can't do that with a serialized show. Everybody's kind of got to be on the same page. So, yeah, we, we on The Good Wife, you know, would always go to hell, and this is often the case with network shows, somewhere around episode nine or ten, because right then you're like, it's November, and at that point you've got... Um, maybe about 10 weeks from, you, you start out at the beginning of the season, you're writing, you're, you're breaking an episode in May that's going to shoot in July, that's going to air in September. It just feels like you've got all the time in the world. <laughs> and, and when you get to that period in November, you're, you're writing an episode that you have about 10 weeks from when you're in the room just saying, well, what's this episode going to be about to when it's got to be on the air. <laughs> and it's, and it's, when you think about it, it's just insane. It makes you want to, like, <laughs> slit your wrists, you know. Uh, so, it, it, you know, when you get to that point, then often things are going to have to be group written and whatever. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. I'm curious to hear, especially from you, David, what you sort of discovered about the series as it went along, as you brought new people into the collaborative process. Well, I, mean, I think I discovered that some of the original ideas that we had maybe were not necessarily like the best ideas. <laughs> no, meaning that there's always better ideas out there that will come from, from other people, that sometimes you have this sort of path 
in the Bible or the document that you mm -hmm. use to sell the show or like, oh, this is going to go here and this is going to lead to that and this is going to lead to that. And then sometimes some of the better things in the, in the season, some of the things that I, I like the most were things that were not in that document at all, mm -hmm. you know, things that just organically, you know, appear in the room and people started discussing and you, you're working with people with different backgrounds, people that may not agree with you and then you realize that you know, maybe that other person has a better idea or, or that that character's path should be different, you know, or that what you're suggesting because the first thing that you thought is a cliche and that other person will call you out on that. You know, <laughs> sure. you know it is dangerous. Like, the first thing that everybody thinks of, it's usually because it's a cliche. Yes. So, you know, so what is the second thing? What is the third thing? First thought, not necessarily best thing. <laughs> <laughs> no. Probably a good rule. So yeah. I, I think it, it, it's, it's that balance between stay the course, you know, and not be total anarchy, but also just be open to, uh, to you know, uh, changing that course. And I think in the case of our show, like Laura's story, which I think is one of the best stories in the season, and, and, and Laura's probably the character that I, by just by going on message boards and, mm -hmm. and Twitter and reading the audience reactions, like the character that everybody loves... Yeah. Uh, her story was very different in, in, in the in the original Bible, you know. And her story is just something that we kind of like found as, yeah. as as we move forward. And maybe that's why it works so well because it, it just organically grew out of you know her own experiences as a character, one episode after the other, and it wasn't like a, something that was already ordained from. Right. from yeah. That's really neat. It was a great. Um really great empowerment story. I mean, we wanted her to be a strong character, and yet the character that is presented in the pilot seems very fragile. And so we wanted to have a really good reason for that fragility, and then a really great way for her to overcome it. And she was, uh, there was some blog recently that wrote, I, I was just was very thrilled to see this, uh, that wrote a uh, blog post about the badass women of science fiction, and Laura was included. Actually, uh, uh, Denise Thomas Elena was also included, and I thought that was great. The, That's really cool. Yeah, and Julia. Yeah, and I mean, we have yeah, and Julia. Yeah, like yeah, sure. three characters that are, I think, very strong female characters, and also I think they, you benefit from having also women in the room as writers. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know that that they you know they know women better than, than we do. Yes. Like you know white dudes. Uh, we were very focused on getting a very balanced writing staff and right. you know diverse writing staff. And sometimes they call you on certain bullshit or certain assumptions or certain you know like sexist uh, presumptions that you'll make, and and that it's good. It forces you to do something that we maybe we haven't done in, for example, our previous movies, which is to give the female characters their due and, and make them have more agency. Mm -hmm. You know, and and also I think that's also part of. Uh, being on TV instead of in a movie in a movie you have the hero and it's his journey and sometimes it's very easy to forget about other characters and, and, and it's easy that they become you know just like parts of his story instead of their own having their own story and, and in television because you have more time and, and also because you have women in the room calling <laughs> you know the, the, this, those female characters become more alive and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and have more agency you know that they would have in one of the movies that Alex and I wrote, for example. You know? mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I want to go um, as we start to wrap up. I want to go way back to the beginning for sure. each of you. And was there a breakthrough script that you had that sort of kickstarted your career? You go first. 
<laughs> uh, well, I don't know about kickstarting your career. Like, you know, I, I, Alex and I, we wrote a movie many years ago that was called Carriers, and, and, and we got to direct it. And in a way, that's what opened the door to many other things. You know, it's just a small movie that we wrote, but Paramount Vantage back then immediately bought it and, and put it into production. And our agent said back then, guys, it's never going to be this easy ever again. <laughs> and he was right. It's never been that easy <laughs> since then. But but in a way, I think that was a project that, that, that really helped. And, and, and everything else has come from that. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, we, we, we went that movie with uh, Chris Pine, who's now, you know, Captain Kirk. <laughs> And he said something like, yeah, you, you put your foot in the door and you get into the room and then you realize that it's a very big room yeah. full of other people and that you're way in the back of the room. Yeah. So that, that, and I think that is true, you know, even it's when you get your foot in the door and you're in the room, you realize that you're always going to be, you know, fighting not only to, you know, improve your career, but also just to stay alive and to pay rent. And so it's a constant, just, uh, it's a lot of work. So what, what did you guys do after that movie? How did you, how did you keep the hustle alive? Well, we, after that movie was released and Paramount pretty much dumped it, you know, and, and it took, it, they put it in the shelf for a long time. So we, and I think the movie was more or less well received. I think it, we, we got some pretty good reviews, but it was not a big hit and then it's become more of a cult movie. But yeah, we were probably in like quote unquote movie jail for a while. You know, it took us like five years to, to direct another movie. And, and what we did, we just we went back to our native Spain and we made a movie there in Spanish, you know, mm-hmm. because we couldn't get arrested here <laughs> in, in Hollywood, really. Sure. So we keep working. Yeah, I know, you know, yeah, you, you write scripts for other people, you know, you, you make a living because people sometimes forget that this is actually, it's not just a passion, yeah. but it's also it's like, you know, how we, you know, feed our kids. <laughs> And so, yeah, we've always been, you know, either if, if things don't work out in the U.S., we go and we go to Spain and we make a movie there. And if things are harder in film, then we try television. You know, it's always about, but always trying to write something that you're passionate about mm-hmm. and that you care about and that you're not just trying to chase trends because that's just never, very rarely works. At least yeah. it never works for us. No, I think that's an important point And it comes up over and over. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so hard to do do the thing you, you love to do yeah. uh, and hopefully someone will respond to it in some way. Uh, Ted, what was the breakthrough for you? Um, I mean, I think this is, this is a story that is probably uh, can be repeated by a lot of people in this business um, in, in that the breakthrough was something that nobody's ever heard of that, you know, got me attention sure. but never got me, you know. I, I mean, I was—I actually was a lawyer a long time ago in a, in a previous life for a couple of years, and didn't like that. Always knew I sort of wanted to do this, and came out here to write, write and direct features, and you know, television. This I'm going back. I'm dating myself here. I'm going back to like the late '90s, and yeah. television wasn't as good then as it is now. It was the no. beginning of the golden age of television, so I really didn't actually come out here wanting to do television. I hadn't thought about it much. Um, it's something I got into later because it turned into this. You know this place that was actually great to be, and where you could do great work. You know, yeah. um, but so I wrote a script uh, a long, long time ago called *The Wicked and the Just*, and it's a fe- it was a feature that was about the story of Elliot Ness. I think there's a poster of him above you uh, there, Elliot Ness from Mayor of Cleveland. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm from the Cleveland area originally, and, and that's a famous story in that area of, of you know he came and was the police commissioner of Cleveland after he put Al Capone away, yeah. and he ran up against. Uh, 
you know, one of the first documented serial killers in America, the torso killer. This yeah. is a story that's been told since I wrote that script. Uh, there was a graphic novel about it. There, you know, there have been a number of attempted movie adaptations of it. None of them ever worked out. You know, so it's one of those funny things that here we are, any number of years later, and, and <laughs> that script I wrote is still out there. And various people have like die. optioned it over the years and yeah. this and that. And it's just, you know, I, I still kind of in the back of my mind fully expect that one of these days. You know, and you read these stories of like the the movie that gets made. And is successful. Somebody wrote ten years ago, twenty. Yeah. You know, I mean, a long time ago. Even La La Land today is a movie that's kicked around for a number of years that Absolutely. you couldn't get made. Nobody wanted any part of it. So anyway, that I wrote that script, and it it was uh, very popular with development executives and studios, and got me lots of meetings, and got me the you know my first job, which was doing a rewrite for Warner Brothers, and then got you know I sold a few other movies mm-hmm. based on that, and got me my first job in television too. That's great. Um, how what? Uh, and then, but yet, it's never been made. You know, of so, course, yeah. but you get. We do tend to have these calling card scripts that right. people really respond to, and that's a great story too. Um, how many scripts have you written before that one? Oh, uh, a bunch, and they weren't very good. You know, right. that was the first really like good script. And I think every writer has that story. Absolutely. There's the, you know, however many scripts you write, they're the ones you really learn on. You know, yeah. so yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I'm curious to hear just. Having worked with other writers and having gone through these this process yourself, what um, I don't want to ask what mistakes writers make on the page, but that's really what I'm asking. But what can writers do to avoid common mistakes? Ooh. You mean as a, in, in in the actual writing or in the actual writing? In the, yeah. in, in the style? Yeah. Uh, I hate to see like big chunks of uh, huge paragraphs with all the description just like put in jammed in there <laughs> that is like yeah this is page is not a minute this page is like three minutes <laughs> or you know scripts that uh, just tell me a lot of backstory about the characters whenever we meet them that we're never gonna know yeah. you know yeah. stuff like that I think it's the, the kind of like rookie mistake that gives you away you know from you know the moment you you read it and I was like I didn't realize that this guy was the son of a decorated World War II pilot <laughs> fighter and how am I supposed to know if nobody ever mentions it right. yeah. you know? so I, it's only in this description yeah yeah. it's interesting I mean show show don't tell it's it's the, the old thing but I mean scripts when I was first learning to write scripts and I, I always talk whenever I talk to groups of I actually was just speaking to my son's uh my son is doing a filmmaking class in his school, and they asked me to come in and you know talk. And I and I, I whenever I speak to groups of people younger than myself, whether that means middle schoolers <laughs> or you know whatever, I always say, "You guys don't understand uh, what life was like before there was an internet." <laughs> and I, you know, I, I remember life before an internet, and I actually started in this business when the internet was was in its infancy. And you, you know, at that time, scripts were hard to come by. Um, because you couldn't just find a billion of them on the internet to read. You actually had to know somebody who had an agent who could get yeah. you the script for that movie that you liked or whatever. They were sort of like gold. And I studied scripts. Um, and now writers who are trying to do this today have access to just about any script they want. So study them and see what works. And, you know, when I was um, breaking into this business, uh, I won't name names of individual writers, but there were certain writers whose scripts were always well-received, and they read, they were page-turners. They read, mm-hmm. whether it was a comedy or a drama or what it was, they read, you know, and they actually, there were writers who actually structured their scripts so that 
at the bottom of the page, it would be like, and then, and you had to turn the page to see what the and then led you to, you know, so little, little tricks like that. If you read the script for Lethal Weapon, the first one, it's hilarious. It's like this meta script that's like, you know, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, interior, a huge fucking house as big as the one you're going to buy when this movie makes so much yeah, money. Exactly. It's, you know, it's, it's something like that, and it's, yeah. it, it's really great. And, then, but, and you're always learning. The and, resources are out there. Yeah. The resources yeah. are out there. The, the, There's one script that I've never been able to find. What's that? So the, first, the first draft of Groundhog Day Huh. Oh, before to see that. they rewrote it when yeah. it was it started with, with uh, the Bill Murray character who had already been there for a thousand years yeah. tried and it wasn't really a comedy right yeah. well I would, lo- I would love I would to love to read, read that if, so if somebody <laughs> has it <laughs> I would love to read the original Pretty Woman when it wasn't a comedy you know, it was a, yeah it was a dark movie about a prostitute and a guy right and then it became this lighthearted comedy someone at Disney has to have that oh sure I could probably <laughs> find it actually I think my, my manager represents the guy who wrote it so I'm sure I could probably get it mm-hmm. dig that up that would be yeah. fat. But, like all this stuff would be so yeah. interesting to read and the way it changes I think I dug up it's, it's hard to get old scripts I dug up um, there's a really great movie that was made in 1978 or 9 called Murder by Decree it was Sherlock yeah. Holmes and oh, yeah, yeah. and Jack the Ripper yes and it was Christopher Plummer and Sherlock Holmes and James Mason and Jack the Ripper and it was directed weirdly by the guy who directed Porky's uh, I forget his last name. He, he's dead now, but you know, he, he's, it's a wonderful movie you uh, made by a director who you wouldn't normally associate with wonderful movies, or at least with that, with, right. with one in that in that space. And that script, you know, it's not really online. I actually finally found it at the uh, I think it's the UCLA Film Archives. Yeah. And I went in and like photocopied it, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to dig, but it's out there. Yeah, you know? and, and especially, I mean, if there is a movie that you love and you want to see how it works. That stuff is so valuable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, that's that's good advice. Uh, so, uh, by the way, all ten uh, incorporated scripts are at the Writers Guild uh, Library, the the Web Shelton Library, which Writers is also Guild. a great resource. So, it is a great resource, and yeah. so you can you can study the genius that is incorporated. <laughs> good guys, go read those scripts, then watch the show. <laughs> Um, what are you guys watching on television these days? What is getting you excited about TV? What do you think TV is doing better than anyone else? I'm. I feel I'm catching up on a lot of stuff that everybody's seen. I'm, I'm halfway through Stranger Things, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, which I have they probably should have watched it before all the hype. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, I everybody loved the show, and I didn't want to watch it and then hate it because everybody was loving it. I'm, I'm like resentful by it. You're protecting your heart. Right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm holding catch fire. Speaking of catching up with stuff that's been around forever, I'm also loving a oh, lot. Right. And Insecure on HBO. The Good Place is probably like the first network show that I've been watching since The Good Wife. You know, so... Yeah, that's what I've been watching. You're watching way more than me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, what do you have time for? Very very little. Um... I'm watching Homeland because I, I I like it. It's a you know it's weird. I mean you don't have to apologize. No, but it's I, I really like Homeland. It's well done, but it's it it's interesting. It is. I always feel Homeland is um, a smarter, uh, more subversive 24, mm-hmm. which is not surprising because it comes from some of the same people who did 24, and 24 was always a weirdly. Um, you know, I actually watched a lot of 24, even though it, it, it devolved down into ultimately every every episode kind of being the same, you know. At some point, Homeland certainly does not have that problem, and I think the characters are really interesting now. And, and this, I actually really enjoying this season so far because it's starting out 
uh, kind of slowly and, and you know, uh, commenting on current geopolitics in an interesting way, I think. So I am watching that. I, I still haven't gotten around to watching Westworld because I T-voted it, but I, for some reason, wasn't able, or I forgot to set the TiVo in time to get the first episode. <laughs> so I have, like, every other one, but the first one, I... I, I Just jump in. Well, I gotta, I, I gotta pick up the first one on... My, I think it's on HBO Go. Yeah, I gotta, right. that, that, but every time we go to watch it, it's like, oh, we don't have the first episode. Right. Can we get the Apple TV to work? I don't know. <laughs> and then we just watch, like, uh, some house hunters on HGTV exactly. or something. Yeah. So. I need to watch Westworld, too. Alex has been telling me that I need to watch it because yeah. it's so great, but they also have, like, such a huge budget that I know I'll be going, like, oh, my God, yeah. all that money... It's insane. Yeah. I mean, it looks amazing. Yeah. It really yeah. does. I am, of course, waiting for Game of Thrones to come back, as I do every year. So. Yep. Sure. Uh, well, congrats on the show, you guys. Thank you. Good luck on season two. Thank I hope you. it happens. Um, and thank you for coming out. It was really fun. Okay. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Nerdist.com.